good to be with you guys this morning. So if we haven't met, my name is Tony. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I have the privilege of being here on staff at Wellspring, and we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're talking about the resurrection, so I thought maybe we'd resurrect the whiteboard this morning. So uh, we're, we're bringing it back. <laughs> we're going to try and rock it this morning. Uh, so yeah, we got 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is, next week will be our last week in 1 Corinthians. Aaron started 1 Corinthians 15 last week. Uh, this morning, we're going to keep at it. And I'd like to start with a question. Because one of my experiences, at least, is in the craziness of life, it's easy to get caught up in all the moving pieces, right? Like we live in a culture that is defined by YOLO, right? You only live once, so you better rock it, right, until you die. And many of us have any roles and responsibilities we carry. I know for me, like, you know, as a, as a, as a husband and a parent, as a pastor and a student and all these other things, right? I, I get distracted by all these different responsibilities. I, I imagine the same is for you. So I guess I just wonder, I, w- I want to start with the question of, so how much does this idea of being in God's presence, right? I read Revelation 21, this idea of God coming to dwell with us. How much does that anchor you today? Right, if you were going to kind of give a score of 1 to 10, right? Like 10 would be every day, right? You think about, you marinate in, you sort of hold on to this hope that God is going to come to make all things new. And a 1 is like, basically, I only think about it when a preacher stands on a stage and starts talking about it. You know, like, if you were to li- sort of mark yourself on that continuum, 10 to 1, where would you be? Because it's one of the convictions of Paul in the New Testament that how we think about the future actually shapes our present. And as I said before, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a 10 on that scale. Like, I just think, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky to understand or to sort of keep the, the reality of God's coming kingdom in the forefront of my mind. But I think I'm not alone in this. I think it's actually one of the reasons that Paul dedicates the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15 to the resurrection. Right? The resurrection is this pivot. It's the threshold. It's the doorway between the biological life we experience now and the reality of participation in God's eternal kingdom, right? If, if one dies before Jesus returns, we de- sort of depend on the resurrection in order to participate in God's coming kingdom. And in Corinth, the truth is, this is where they get stuck. In verse 35 of chapter 15, there are two central questions that Paul raises that are sort of coming out of Corinth. These are questions that they have. There are two of them. One is this, right? How are the dead raised? And the second is, with what kind of body do they come? You see, in Greek philosophy, immortality was something they all assumed. The problem was, for them, immortality was all about the soul. So Paul's talking about the resurrection, and they get sort of confused. They're like, wait, how does the body connect to immortality or eternity? See, immortality wasn't the issue. Eternity wasn't the issue for the Corinthians. It was this idea of an embodied immortality that they just got super confused about. How can a body exist in an eternal kingdom? 
Now, Paul takes their concerns really seriously. This is why in verses 37 and 38, Paul responds to their questions. See, the church in Corinth was kind of this like commercial, a manufacturing center, but they had this plain just outside the city where they grew lots of crops. And so Paul takes an example that they would have been familiar with, the idea of a seed growing and transforming. And this is what he writes, verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other kind of grain. But God gives it a body that he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. Right? We know this. Right? If you plant a sunflower seed, you know, the seed you eat when you're playing baseball, right? Like a sunflower seed, and you plant it in the ground, right? It grows up into this beautiful, massive flower. But if you think about it, right, the seed illustrates the change that happens through death from one mode of existence into another, from a seed, right, to a sunflower. And applied to the resurrection, what Paul is simply saying is that the Corinthians, hey guys, like your exact body that you're in now isn't the exact body that you will have in eternity. For instance, like if you have diseases, those will be healed. If there are parts of your body that are not functioning well, they will be healed. Right? God moves, just as he transforms a seed into a sunflower, he will transform our physical body into a physical body that makes sense, that works within the kingdom for eternity. Right? There's two modes of existence of the body before the resurrection and after it. Paul then offers multiple examples of different kinds of bodies that are specifically designed right, for each creature or each entity right, in its own context. He writes this, this is 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For different stars from, from star, for star differs from star in glory. Now, there's a lot of glory there, but essentially what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians is, hey guys, God creates and designs bodies, particular modes of existence for every contextual environment, right? Animals on the earth, fish in the sea, birds in the sky. And Paul may have referred to the sun and the moon and the stars here because there was a common belief in the ancient world that the human soul was made up of the same ethereal stuff as these celestial bodies. So Paul's trying to kind of work within their philosophical assumptions to illustrate how an embodied resurrection makes sense. One, God can create a body that works in any environment. He can create a body, a human body that works on earth right now, and a human body that works in his eternal kingdom. Paul's trying to help the Corinthians address, or help address the Corinthians' core questions about this idea of an embodied immortality. Now, there's a lot of moving parts here in Paul's argument between 42 and 49. At, co at the core, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians know that a major change happens at the resurrection by the power of God, and he uses Adam and Jesus as his core examples. But I'd actually like to focus on a later part of the chapter. Uh, there's just a lot going on in this section of text. There's a lot of text, and I want to really spend a lot of time on how this translates to our everyday life, because 
as you can tell already, probably, our questions are not exactly the same as the Corinthian questions, and I want to spend enough time on our questions. But thus far, Paul has tried to answer their questions about the resurrection, but he also wants to focus on how those questions and this idea of the embodied resurrection actually relates to participation in God's eternal kingdom. So he writes this in verses 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Now again, he's going back to this idea of the individual body is transformed, right? The seed to the sunflower. Right? Our body that we're in now is not going to be the exact same body, though there will be continuity between now and later. It'll be a little different. But if you also notice, Paul is actually speaking about something bigger here too. Notice he says this, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. And what he's saying here is, not all of us will die before Jesus returns. But implied here is, some of us will. And I think, I want to take a second just to explain, I think, what the New Testament has to say here, because it can be a little confusing. So, this is why I wanted to bring back the whiteboard, because I think there's actually something really important to say here. But it's a little complicated without a visual. So, I thought I'd start with a visual. All right, so, we are on Earth. I'm going to try and make this as thick as possible so it's going to be a terrible drawing, but you'll, you'll, you'll go with me, all right? All right, so we're going to put some, I'm just going to do this because my green isn't working. So that's earth. Yay, good art. Okay, so that's earth. This is where we're living. You can't see it. All right, well, I can try and make it darker. Is that better? Okay, the black works. I got a thumbs up. All right, so you at home, this is earth, even though it looks like a... The earth before it was formed. Um, okay, so this is earth. This is where we live. And Paul is simply saying, right, like as you're living right now on earth, at some point, if you die before Jesus returns, right, you die. This is your gravestone. The question is, what happens now, right? So you've gone to sleep. Well, the New Testament says what happens here is you go to be with Christ is the example it says, right? You go to be with Christ. But the thing is, your body is still on earth. So there's this interim period. If you die before Jesus returns, you go to be with Christ. And when Paul says there's a mystery here, what he's saying is we don't totally understand what this is like, right? But what the New Testament says is this is not the state. This is not where we spend eternity, with Christ disembodied. What the New Testament also says is that Jesus will return to earth. And when he returns to earth, right, he is going to establish his kingdom on earth and there will be a resurrection. You won't be able to see this probably, but this is where we will get bodies. The resurrection will happen, and then we are reunited with our bodies on earth, right? So Revelation 21, which I read at the beginning, right? Jesus will return. He will make all things new. He'll get all of the bad stuff, evil, injustice, wrong, sin, 
the brokenness of our world and our physical bodies. He'll renew it. And he'll establish, right, through the resurrection, as we come back, we'll get reunited in our physical bodies and we'll live with Jesus in his eternal kingdom on the new earth. Does that kind of make sense? John Mark Comer has this great quote. He says this, If Jesus is a ticket to heaven, as the preacher says, then he is a round-trip ticket, not a one-way. Because at the resurrection, we come back. Right? If you think about it, Paul's focus on the resurrection takes on new meaning now. If eternity is a physical space where we need physical bodies, it's not floating on clouds like the medieval, medieval artists want us to think, with cherubs and harps. It is a physical space. And this is where I think Isaiah 25, which Paul then quotes in verses 54 and 55, becomes important. He says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now Paul is obviously telling the Corinthians that life, that there is, right, life after death, which is huge, right? We die, we come to go with Jesus, right? But then Jesus returns and we have an eternal life on this new earth. But the context of Isaiah 25 is fascinating. This is verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Right? And then verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Right? Notice the picture that Isaiah gives. Right? Isn't a disembodied bodies floating on clouds, strumming harps. It's a party. It's a feast. There's food. There's wine. Right? And if there's food and wine, there's bodies that they're going in. Right? Like we're sitting together on the new earth and it's a party. It's a feast. And importantly, this is the same verse that Paul then draws, or John draws from in Revelation 21, right? He sees the new heaven and the new earth, and what does he say? God dwells on the new earth with us, and he will personally wipe the tears from our faces. So in Corinth, there's these questions, right, about how does the embodiment connect to eternity, right? And they're confused there. But when we sort of take this text and now apply it into our everyday life, the thing is, I, I think the Corinthians, right, they could imagine immortality, but not an embodied one. And when I think about us, when I think about myself, what I realize is that we actually struggle on both of these accounts. We have a hard time imagining eternal life at all, right, with this pressure of our culture to focus on YOLO, right? You only live once. Rock it now. And the theology the Western church has been given, particularly from the Middle Ages on, is very disembodied, right? It's floating in this interim space without a return to the new earth. So what we imagine in our minds is sort of this disembodied floating, kind of like the Corinthians did. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. He says this, We may be sure that our life, yes, that familiar one we are each so well acquainted with, 
will never stop. We should be anticipating what we will, what we will be doing 300 or 1,000 or 10,000 years from now in this marvelous universe. We should be anticipating that reality. Because he says this, For we are never ceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in the full world of God. Right? This is our reality. And yet, we often forget this. And yet, we all have all these assumptions, I think, about what eternal life in God's kingdom is actually going to be like, and they shape our imaginations. I want to take some time for the remainder of this sermon to address actually three assumptions, three theories that we have, I think, about what eternal life is like and how they actually shape our imaginations. And what I want to do is kind of till the soil of our imaginations so that we can even begin to imagine what will it be like to live forever in God's kingdom. Because I think how we imagine that has profound effects on how we live today. Now, the first theory I want to talk about of eternal life is, I, I just want to call it the evacuation theory of eternity. It's something like this. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge the world, right? He's basically going to evacuate us off the earth, and he's going to burn this up. This is going to burn, and he's going to evacuate us off, and we're going to settle somewhere in the heaven space, outside of earth, right, because the earth is burning. Now, this comes from 2 Peter 3.10. Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. And we, you know, the Western church has read this and then passed down this theology to the churches that what this means is that, you know, the earth is going to burn this is not our home, so God's going to take us and He's going to basically evacuate us like a, you know, a Navy SEAL team diving in, getting us like, go, 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 you know, and we're, we're off to another place. Except, when you actually read the context of 1 Peter 3, what you see is that Peter is retelling the story of the flood, right? What he writes actually is, through the flood, the earth was destroyed by water. But if you've read the story, you know the earth is not destroyed. It's actually wiped clean. It's a global restart. Right? Peter is saying here that a day is coming when all the layers of injustice and sin and hatred will be burned up and the earth will be made like new. It's not coincidental that just a few verses later, Peter writes, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? This is the exact same language that John quotes and says right, in Revelation 21. He's not going to make a whole new earth. When he says, you know, in Revelation 21, I'm going to make all things new and that there's a new earth, what he's saying is that he is going to renew the earth that we have. Just like in the flood. There is a renewal, a cleaning, a global restart happening. So what's clear here is that eternity is not a departure. It's not an evacuation from earth, but earthly. 
just without sin and evil and injustice. Right? So when we imagine life in God's eternal kingdom, let's start with the earth that we know. And then assume that it's a preview of a much better coming attraction. Well, that's the first, right? So that's a, you know, an evacuation theory of eternity. Now, a second issue that I see in the church today that I think really shapes how we imagine life on this new earth, uh, it's sort of shaped by these texts in the New Testament and in the Old where people are singing a lot. I'm calling this sort of the choir theory of eternity. Right, because we read Isaiah, we read Revelation, and we see these people, you know, these angels singing before the throne of God. And we wonder, you know, am I going to be singing forever? Like, do I get an instrument? You know, do, do you, will you remake my voice so that I can sing like Heather, you know, versus my voice because I cannot sing on tune? But when you go to actually John's vision of the new heaven in the new earth in Revelation 21, what you see is that John intentionally and distinctly creates similarities between the new earth, pictured in Revelation 21, and creation described in Genesis 1 and 2. And John does this really intentionally. right? Just like in Eden, there's a tree of life and there's rivers. And throughout Revelation, John is consistently talking about how we will reign and rule with Jesus, just like humans do in Revelation 1. So what John is trying to do is he's trying to get us to imagine life on the new earth like creation before the fall. And so actually there's a lot of clues when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. There's a lot of clues about what life will be like on this new earth. And it's actually not going to be, you know, a choir theory of eternity. There's a lot more going on. First, in Genesis 1 and 2, they both paint an active picture of life before the fall. Right? People are not just singing in God's presence. Human beings are called to rule in Genesis 1. And they're called to tend the garden in Genesis 2. There's this profound sense of partnership with God in, a creative, in creation before sin and evil and injustice enter the picture. And this is super important, because if you contrast Genesis 1 and 2 with all the other Near Eastern creation myths, it has a totally different feel. So in all these other creation myths, right, in the Near East, what you basically have is gods, they're tired, they're worn out, you know, probably like us, you know, at 5 p.m. most days of the week. You're tired and worn out, what do they do? They create humanity as cheap labor. So human beings, what do they do, right? They bring food and drink from sacrifices at the temple. That way the gods can sit back and relax. But when you contrast this with Genesis 1 and 2, what you see is that our God doesn't dislike being active. He seems to really enjoy it, actually, right? Days 1 through 6, he's making stuff. And at the end of the day, he's like, man, that is good. I like what I made. There's this clear pleasure that God is taking in building, in creating, and in creativity itself. And humanity isn't created as cheap labor, right? But they're rather meant to be partners with God, right? They're made in His image and then invited to basically rule with Him as His image bearers on earth. In Genesis 2, 
Right? You have this, God could have created a world where food fell from the sky, right? Like cloudy with a chance for meatballs, right? If you've watched that movie with your kids or your grandkids, right? But instead, he chose for humans to do things like farming and agriculture and trade as a means of provision. Adam is told to work and keep the garden in Genesis 2.15. Right? To work in Hebrew is a bod, and it can mean work or service, but it's also the word that is used all throughout the Old Testament to mean worship. So when we look back on Genesis 1 and 2, what we learn is that life is active and worshipful and without sin. Right? And this portrait of work and action and worship is then balanced with this idea of rest. I mean, think about it. Right? You can't read Genesis 1 without, this, without sort of day 7 sticking out. God rested. The eternal being of God does not need a vacation or a day off, and yet he rests, and then what does he do? He invites his image bearers to rest with him. That's a quick sketch of Genesis 1 and 2. And what we see that will inform our understanding of what life will be like on the new earth is it's not just a choir theory of eternity. It's not just sitting around singing forever. And it's not just a super long vacation or retirement either. It will be filled with patterns of activity and rest. The problem is, often when we think about work or activity, we're sort of shaping it or understanding it in terms of our experience of work, which often is filled with sin and brokenness, power, unhelpful power dynamics, bosses we don't like, whatever, all these things. And we think, oh man, I do not want to work forever. But instead, imagine, imagine working. Imagine those moments in your life, I'm sure we've all had them, where you were doing something you loved and you didn't think of it as work. You didn't have to get paid to do it. You would have done it for free because there was this alignment between who you were and the gifts and skills you had and what you were doing. And it just brings you joy and pleasure. I was talking to Heather before service and she was saying, she brought up this scene in the Polar Express, this movie. Hopefully it's okay that I'm sharing this. And uh, she was talking about how the reindeer in this movie were just like super excited at the end of the movie to like take the presents to the kids. And she's like, I came in this morning excited to sing and leave, right? Heather is not up here because she's forced to. She's not active engaging because she's like, oh, I have to be on. She loves it. Think of those times when you related to work and activity that way, your hobbies maybe. That is what activity in God's new earth will be like. John and Peter refer to the new, or uh, sorry, John and Peter refer to the new earth, and they're both drawing from Isaiah 65. This is what Isaiah says. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Right? When Isaiah is imagining what life on this new earth will be like, he sees God's people. He sees us building and farming and eating and drinking and bursting with joy. Right? It won't be in vain. 
right? And when John talks about us in Revelation 7.15, serving God in eternity, this is what he means. It's this active, joyful life, right? That's balanced with periods of rest and refreshment and hanging out with friends around a table. Victor Hugo, he wrote Les Mis. He has this amazing quote. This is what he says. For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. But I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my day's work is done. But I cannot say, my life is done. My work will commence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley, it's a thoroughfare. It closes upon twilight, but opens upon the dawn. Right? Life in God's eternal kingdom will allow us to continue doing many of the things that we love and offer us opportunities to do things we wished for, but maybe never had the opportunities to do. And honestly, this saves us from frantically thinking in YOLO terms that we need to cram everything into every moment. Right? We have thousands upon thousands of years in God's eternal kingdom. And it saves us from the despair of limits of time and money and strength and health and duties that keep us from doing the things we really love to do. Dallas Willard again has this phrase. He says that today is training for reigning. Right now, we're learning the skills we need in order to live forever in God's eternal kingdom. And not just when we're doing, quote-unquote, ministry, but all of life, right? As gardeners, as architects, as teachers. Because what we do in all of life translates into participation in God's eternal kingdom. Right? We are preparing for an eternity in God's kingdom. And that preparation isn't just choir practice. Right? It's all of our life. Right, that's the second theory of eternity that I think sort of pushes on some assumptions we might have. Again, we're tilling the soil so that we can imagine what life could be like, what life will be like. Now, the third one I, I'm calling a boring theory of eternity because I think some of us have this sense that like, man, that's a long time. Like, I'm going to get bored. You know, I, I've had folks outside the church tell me like, I'd rather be having a good time in hell than bored in heaven. Right? This assumption is that sin and stuff that you might enjoy in hell is sort of fun. And that all this sort of like good stuff is sort of like boring. But the truth is, this is a profound misunderstanding of eternal life. But even more importantly, of who God is. It forgets that God is the one who designed our human desire for pleasure and the experience of joy, right? He made our taste buds, adrenaline, sex drive. He's the one who formed the nerve endings in our brain that convey pleasure. He's the one who created a capacity in us for adventure. God is far and away the most fascinating, the most brilliant, the most loving, and the most joyful beings in the universe. 
being with him will be absolutely captivating. You could be on a rock by yourself with God forever and never even scratch the surface of the joy and the pleasure of being in his presence. The prophet Habakkuk says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, eternity that on the new earth, right, the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the world, of the, of the Lord, right, as the waters cover the sea. All of life will be saturated with the pleasure and the presence of God. Revelation 21 says that God won't dwell in a temple, right, like in the Old Testament, but He'll be with us. He'll be on the ground. He'll be with us in all we do. 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 28, Paul says that God will be all in all, right? He will be the center of eternal life. He will be the center of the new earth. I remember in college reading this book. I just started following Jesus. I remember reading this book uh, by this guy named John Piper. It's called Desiring God. And he, he talked about this idea of Christian hedonism. It was this interesting idea. What he said is that God is the most pleasurable, joyful being in the universe. And we're drawn to his presence not because we have to, but because being with him is ultimately the most pleasurable thing we could possibly do. And I remember resonating so deeply with that. Actually, it was only maybe a month or even years, a year before when I had had sort of this real first experience of God's presence. I was in this room studying the Bible, and I just started the sense of God's presence. And I remember I left the room, and I literally, like we were in the woods, and I just fell on the ground weeping. And it wasn't because I was sad. It wasn't because I was grieving. It was because I experienced the pleasure of God's presence and I literally could not control my response. It was so overwhelmingly joyous that I literally just fell down and started weeping. The Westminster Catechism says this, that the chief end of man right, is to bring glory to God and I think a lot of us think, amen. But that's not how it reads. It says, the chief end of man is to bring glory to God and enjoy Him forever. This is what we will do on the new earth. We will be in God's presence. We will know, as we sang earlier, that He is good. If this was all life on the new earth was about, it would be incredible. And yet, it isn't. As we've already said, there will be endless fulfilling projects and hobbies. We'll be surrounded by friends with no sin or brokenness, but laughter and adventure and food and pleasure. And Isaiah 25 talks about this banquet. We'll be with God and each other. Revelation 21 seems to say at least that there will also be distinct cultures and nations. So this isn't like some monocultural American or modern experience, right? There's going to be people from not only our culture, but all cultures, and not only our time, but all of time. Can you imagine the diversity of that banquet? Think of all the fascinating people that will be at that table. 
I look forward to talking with Paul about this sermon series and being like, man, where did we get it right and where did we totally miss it, you know? One of the people I loved most in my life was my grandmother. Like, but she died when I was just uh, at the beginning of college. I look forward to grabbing a cup of tea or going for a walk with her and getting to know her as an adult. I wonder who you look forward to sitting with at that table. Maybe people you've lost, people you miss, people whose lives were cut short before you really got to know them. Eternity won't be boring. God is going to be there. We're going to be there together, but without all the sin and muck and grossness that is in our world. My friends, let's, let's address some of these assumptions we have about what life is going to be like in God's kingdom. Let's address this idea that some of us, I think, think there's this evacuation. Some of us think it's choir practice, and some of us think it's going to be boring. Let's, let's address that. Let's challenge that from a biblical perspective. Let's till the soil of our imaginations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because there's a resurrection. Why? Because there is an eternal kingdom. And when we're grounded in that sort of space, in that hope, our imagination is cultivated and churned, right? And we're imagining it what? We can be steadfast. We can be immovable, always abounding in good works, even when life is hard. Now, as we think about this practically, as we get on the ground into the fissures and the contours of our life, a couple of things I think really could be helpful for us as we move forward. The first is this. I want to challenge you. Take some time this week to imagine what are five things that get you excited about participating in God's eternal kingdom. What would they be? Take some time, journal about it, go on a walk. And then I invite you to circle back with Jesus and talk to him about that. Connect with him about what that could be like. I was talking with someone earlier this week on the phone. I was just sort of asking, like, what do you look forward to? And this person was like, you know, I just look forward to being in the presence of Jesus and the fullness of his presence. And I would just say to you this morning, right, like being with Jesus is not in your top five, right, of the things you're looking forward to. I would, I would challenge you. Maybe something's off in your relationship with God. Maybe it's happened in COVID. Maybe this happened way before. But God is going to be the center of eternal life. If you're not looking forward to being with him, I would encourage you, circle back with Jesus. I would encourage you, reach out to a friend because God is going to be all in all. Everything else is gravy. Being with Jesus is the center. The second thing I would encourage you to do, maybe address, like, what are three things that get in the way of you sort of tilling the soil of your imagination and your hopes and your dreams, marinating on the, your future destiny? A couple of things that get in the way. 
And then especially because we are in COVID and we're often feeling so separated, I would encourage you, reach out to one person. Tell them the three things that get in the way and actually have them pray for you. So you're not just doing this on your own. And last, I just want to say, you know, for those of you who are interested in reading, a couple books out there that could be helpful. One, C.S. Lewis has a book called The Great Divorce, which is just a great way of stirring your imagination of what, of what eternal life might be like. Two, John Mark Comer has a book that I, I'd recommend. It's called Garden City. The third part really gets into what we're talking about now, but the other parts sort of dress life now and then how they connect later. Uh, I would re- recommend that book as well. And then Randy Alcorn has a book called Heaven, which also gets into some of this stuff. But I would just encourage you, if you're a reader, if you want to learn more, those would be three places. One, to either stir your imagination or get a better biblical window into what life could be like in God's eternal kingdom. And with that said, I, I just want to take a moment just to pray for us. Because I think, you know, there's just so much going on in our minds and in our hearts. And it's sometimes hard, right? You hear a sermon like this and you're like, whoa, a little disoriented. And so I just want to pray that God would reveal who he is to you and also what his kingdom is like. Jesus, we just ask in this moment that you would speak. That the words of your scriptures would just cement in our brains what you are like, who you are like, and what your kingdom is like. What it will be like to worship you and serve you and live on your new earth in your eternal kingdom. God, stir our imaginations that we might be a people that are forever looking to you for our hope and our joy and our satisfaction. God, give us pictures. Give us windows of of longing. Give us five things, God, that we can sort of hold on to and say, yes, God, I'm looking forward to that. And God, give us three things that we can see are blocking our ability to till the soil of our imagination of what it will be like to be with you and in your kingdom. God, give us a taste of your presence this day because in the end, God, you are the center. You are the king. You are the holy one that we worship. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into our present. Come into our heart that we may worship you both today and forevermore. In the holy, holy name of Jesus.